Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So sitting here right now, I'm in a quantum Barbie moment in the sense that I'm hours away from seeing the new Barbie movie and I'm 24 hours away from doing one of the conversations you're about to hear on this show, a conversation about the Barbie movie. You know what I am? I'm Schrodinger Barbie. Remember the Schrodinger Barbie and she had the little box with the cat in it? There must have been a Schrodinger Barbie. Well, even if there wasn't, we're going to talk about everything else about Barbie today and quite a bit about Ken. It turns out that over the years, we have had many conversations, at least several significant conversations about Barbie, about Ken, about her history, about her creator. And of course, we are going to have a conversation about the brand new Barbie movie. It's all going to be packed like a haagen pint of ice cream into this one episode after the news. Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe, and I never had a Barbie. Or a Ken, but there's no escaping it. It's in the drinking water. I mean, actually, the plastic from Barbie is probably actually in our drinking water, much to the hazard of our health. But that doesn't matter. We're going to talk about Barbie on the show today. It turns out we have done a number of shows involving Barbie, including one that was fully dedicated to Barbie at the time of her 60th anniversary. But obviously, the new movie is an occasion to talk even more about it. You'll hear us talk more about it in a brand new conversation. And yes... You'll hear us talk about Ken, even gulp, gulp, man bun Ken. There was a man, there was and probably still is. Barbie doesn't ever degrade, right? She's here forever. So I assume man bun Ken is here somewhere and being very sensitive or something or clueless or something. Anyway, yeah, you'll hear the nose. You'll hear a conversation about Greta Gerwig's new movie, Barbie, and so much more. But first, Let's take a look at our relationship with Barbie and Ken. With that in mind, we talked to Mihal Levram, an editor at large covering technology and entertainment sectors for Fortune, where she published a piece in 2017 called My Relationship with Barbie. It's complicated. I mean, I, I, I do have a complicated relationship with Barbie, kind of a love-hate thing going on. And I didn't really think about Barbies for a very long time until I had two girls. And at some point, this was a couple of years back, they started asking for Barbies. And I said, no, but I couldn't really explain why, or I couldn't come up with a good enough explanation for a, you know, six and seven year old. And around the same time or shortly after, I happened to embark on a uh, story for Fortune magazine on Mattel, the maker of Barbie. And so it was really a, a great opportunity to kind of explore why I had certain feelings about this doll and also interview a bunch of friends of mine who were kind of in the same boat. So, I mean, just to backtrack, though, for a second, I think it's one thing to try to outlaw a toy that you never had and know nothing about. It's another thing to tell your children that they can't have a toy that you had and loved and you had more than one Barbie, right? I did. So when I was growing up, I didn't I didn't actually have any Barbies until my family moved to the United States. And when I was nine years old, I basically inherited these hand-me-down Barbies. And I trust me, I remember the, the dresses I got. I remember, you know, and there were all the blonde Barbies, the kind of traditional old style Barbie. 
But I remember the case that they came in. I remember all of it. And I, it was like a treasure box. And it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was like the best present I'd, I'd gotten at that point. And I loved playing with them. But I also, you know, in hindsight, I, I feel like I, I have a lot of questions. I mean, I had a lot of, I guess, issues and, and sort of you know, confidence issues about my own appearance. I do not look like a Barbie. They, at the time, did not have a frizzy-haired Barbie. So <laughs> I didn't have a Barbie that looked like me. I think a lot of girls didn't. And even if you're blonde-haired, you don't look like a Barbie. It's anatomically impossible, right? So I do think, you know, while I don't blame Barbie for any confidence issues or the extent of confidence issues as a girl growing up, I don't know that the impact was, you know, net positive. Right. And I mean, there were certain things that you held against Barbie. For example, there was, I think, a teen Barbie whose theme included the notion that that class is Yeah, and it's funny because I grew up in a family where my mom was a a computer programmer. I did not like math, but my my mother was, that's her passion is is math and engineering, and same with my dad. And it didn't jive, you know, it's like I, that kind of aura, that kind of, you know, reputation that Barbie had. And despite all of Mattel's efforts, even back then to have all, you know, Barbie with all these different careers, you know, why is she always wearing heels? Why is math hard for her? It just, it didn't totally jive with my, the impressions that I had, the conflicting impressions I had of women in my life. I mean, we should say that Barbie has addressed these kinds of things. If you think Barbie isn't ever thinking about STEM, you underrate Barbie's malleability and opera and ability to at least attempt to change with the times. Let's talk about the dream gap. What's that? It's the gap that comes between girls and their full potential. You see, starting at age five, girls stop believing they can be presidents, scientists, astronauts, big thinkers, engineers, CEOs, and the list goes on. Why? Because what else are we going to believe? When by age seven, we're more likely to think that boys are smarter than us. That's ridiculous. When we are three times less likely to be given a science-related toy. That's sad. And when our parents are twice as likely to Google, is my son gifted? Then is my daughter gifted? That's not cool. We need to see brilliant women being brilliant and see how they got to where they are to imagine ourselves doing what they do. So suddenly there were Barbies with STEM themes in their accessories. And, and Mahal, there's obviously also now Barbies with different body types. There's Barbies with different kinds of hair. There's even some Kens, as we said, with different... Apparently, according to you, there's a dad bod Ken, which probably is going to turn out to be a toy, which... If I, you know, really worked out a lot, I could get maybe a dad bod Ken, but uh, or a Ken. <laughs> I think dad he's a very popular uh, no. toy. To be so, honest, <laughs> so I mean, they've made these efforts. I mean, they mm-hmm. they in fact don't want to wear the kind of labels that they've been given in the past. And th- how much of a difference does that make to either to you or to some of the other women that you spoke to? You know. Makes a difference, and obviously having different ethnicities in particular, I think, is super important because you know you 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 want to be what you can see, right? And and it's really important to have little girls and boys be able to play with toys that that look like them. You know, that said, okay, close your eyes and think of a Barbie. What image do you have in your mind? 
you know, I think most people, it's a, it's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Barbie with, you know, a really slender body and big boobs, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, but that is still the picture that most of us have in our mind. And I can tell you that for myself and for my friends who grew up around the same time, you know, maybe there were different career Barbies out there, astronaut Barbie or whatever, but when we were playing with them, we put dresses on, big frilly dresses on them and pretended like they were going to parties and they wore heels. And so, you know, again, it's not that that's all bad, but I feel very conflicted about pushing or even enabling my own daughters to have that image today. But so what do you do about it? I mean, uh, and I know that you've, you and your daughters are also been watching some Barbie cartoons. I mean, I guess it was the, the founder of, of Barbie, the creator of Barbie said, this is all about conversations that you have with your kids as opposed to how Barbie looks or what Barbie does. Absolutely. I mean, I think that toys, whether and, and, and content, you know, whether it's technology or not, I think that if it sparks a conversation, great. So my approach to both the Barbie conversation and, you know, increasingly as my daughters are getting older, technology is to, to do it with them, to experience it with them and use it as a learning opportunity to talk about, you know, why I don't necessarily think something is the best you know, lesson for them and the best example for them to have. And, you know, I think my knee-jerk reaction initially, like, no, you can't have a Barbie doll, that doesn't work. That never works. That's like, that's a great way of getting your kid to really want to play with something. Although, although that's true, actually, the more forbidden you make anything, they're, totally. they're, they're probably going to do that. <laughs> although, you know, you do have friends who are, you know, so to speak, hardcore feminists. Were there ones who took the position, nope, nope, that body is coming into my house over my dead body? You know, no, and actually I was surprised that my, like, one of my friends who I consider the most hardcore feminist was, like, really ambivalent about it. And I think part of the reason is because today, um, you know, our kids, for better or worse, are growing up with so many different influences and exposure to different elements. And, you know, again, there are, there are good and bad aspects to that flow and, you know, just massive influx of, of information. But I think that there's no one thing that's going to have, you know, the most influence on, on them today. There are just so many toys and, you know, things to do out there for kids. But yeah, I was surprised. I was actually surprised. You know, one thing I'll say is that I do think that because Mattel has really tried to, to change, I, I think it could be like... My generation, while some of us are still ambivalent about Barbies, there is a negative association there. You know, there's kind of this like, oh, I really enjoyed playing with them, but like, I don't want to enjoy playing with them. And it, and and there is this love hate thing for a lot of people. That's my Barbie. Go Barbie. Go Barbie. Okay, so that's Barbie, but we have to talk about Ken. First of all, one thing you need to know about Ken is he actually has a full name. I had not been aware of this. He is Kenneth Sean Ken. Carson. But in 2017, for pretty much the first time, Mattel did unveil a new line of Kens, 15 different varieties of Ken that were all, you know, the real Ken, just different from one another. I don't understand it either. But they, they weren't like friends of Ken. They weren't named Scooter or anything like that. They were just Ken. At the time, Katie Weaver writing in GQ said there will be an original size Ken with cornrows, a slim Ken with a fade, a mixed race Ken with a man bun. Asian Kens, Latino Kens, a pale white Ken, <laughs> a pale white Ken, and a tan white Ken, and a Ken who's wearing a watch. I guess that's old-fashioned Ken who doesn't have a phone. And there's going to be a Ken who's kind of, I don't know, 
broad, broad in the waist and hips, something like that. Man Bun Ken, of course, was the most notorious one. So the nose had to deal with that. We convened a panel of Rand Richards Cooper, Teresa Kramer, and Rich Holland. I started the conversation by saying to Rich, presumably Mattel focus grouped the crap out of this thing. They always do. That's what Mattel does. You know, they, <laughs> they're a big corporation. They protect their brand like nobody's business, and they do their research. And we have to bear in mind that this Ken doll is not for us sitting in here and what our sensibilities are as, you know, as, as people in our... I have a question for you as someone who might do this. Do they... Do what? Do, like <laughs> a, no, no, no. Like a, uh, like a focus group, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would they focus group the children to find this out? Because I, do you think kids you were focus, saying we want you, a chubbier yeah, Ken? You focus group both things. You, okay. You'd focus group the kids for the product mm-hmm. and you'd focus group the parents as well for an awful lot of the marketing and right. the purchasing process. Okay. So you, you dig into both and you and you get the pieces right and they're not necessarily the same. And the neat thing about this mm-hmm. that I think is I just kind of like the diversity. I like yeah. that we can talk about it that way, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. And I like that despite what might be going on in the world elsewhere mm-hmm. that wants to pan diversity and treat it like, you know, like yeah. it's like it's a joke. That Mattel saying, like, you know, the long game mm-hmm. is in this game. Right. You know, and I kind of applaud that. Rand, take it away. Well, there are so many thoughts. But one, <laughs> the simplest one is Ken doll. To be called a Ken doll is always, it's always a usable and useful epithet. Mm-hmm. So it means, you know, you're, you're a glossily generic person. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to diversify Ken Dahl so that he begins to represent the actual range of human features, how can you call someone a Ken Dahl anymore with, with such a useful smack of, of, of irony? Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. I got us both ice cream. Cool. Looking at the big now, the, we, we all saw that array of different Ken Dolls, mm-hmm. including Man Bun Ken. One thing I wondered, well, this is sort of playing catch-up. I mean, men have been wearing their hair, for instance, any way they want to for for decades now. I'm of the age – I was probably the last generation of American males – at large anyway, who were forced to get their hair cut really short by their father. Mm-hmm. A terrible episode in the kitchen. You're getting your hair cut. You look like a girl, not in my house. And so on. You know, now it's like, whatever. And if yeah. you, you look at high school in, in many, in many places, not in all places, but in mm-hmm. many places, you look at high school kids, how boys, how they wear their hair. It's, you know, so I, I think, I think Mattel's playing catch up a little bit that, that way. All of, for me, all of, whatever we might say about Ken, the Ken doll, the article mentioned that kids and their girls, they use these dolls for storytelling and, and play acting. That companies are still producing physical objects for children to hold, mm-hmm. play with, and then use in their lives in order to generate narrative games that they play each other with each other. I mean, to mm-hmm. me, it's great. Make more of that kind of product. One of the yeah. things I was thinking about in terms of just having been a young girl who had a lot of Barbie dolls was that I just didn't have Kens, right? I had like one or two. It wasn't like I needed to go run out and get the new Ken. But now, because they all look so different from each other, you you can I could see a little girl or whoever saying, well, I got I got to get them all or I, I want that one mm. because I like his hair better and I also like this one's short, so can I have them both, you know, instead of just being like, yeah, whatever, they all look the same and they all have on the same boring tuxedo. I don't care. My, my sister yeah. grabbed my G.I. Joes yeah. to play with her Barbies <laughs> mm-hmm. and just, you know, 
it was optically wrong. Yes. So. The size the size difference well, is off. Everything yeah. was off. Some of this is, I mean, I, I sent around uh, just a little picture. Lisa Simpson famously, mm-hmm. as a preteen, used to read this teen mag called Non-Threatening Boys. You know, and all of the Kens are kind of non-threatening boys, mm-hmm. right? There's never going to be a Stanley Kowalski Ken, no matter how many Kens <laughs> they make. Because, in fact, for the most part, the market, as you're saying, Rand, is to third and fourth grade, second, third and fourth grade girls. They don't really want... You know, they they want somebody who looks like a cast off from a boy band, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's who their idea of the. Per- I, I also just would like to say, Susan Campbell, during the many years that I sat next to her at work, nine years, but who's counting, used to call me a Ken doll. But what she meant was that, in her opinion, I had no genitalia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And that has not been changed in the in no, the new no, lineup. No. But you're uh, not allowed to photograph Ken with his clothes off, his according clothes off. to that GQ article. Right. I, I will say, I asked my daughter what she thought about Barbies and Kens, mm-hmm. and she mostly played with American Girl dolls mm-hmm. and with these other things called Reborns. And by the way, that's a whole <laughs> no. That is a whole other topic. I can't even terrifying. get into it. Yeah, I don't but know. Uh, but I said, but I said, well, what about Barbies? Oh, I don't really like them. And she ex- explained why the mm-hmm. the size, the 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 fact that their bodies were sort of shiny and and hard. And mm-hmm. and she said mostly we just we pulled their heads off and turn them into zombies. And I thought, <laughs> some things never change. Right on. Exactly. That was Rand Richards Cooper, Teresa Kramer, and Rich Holland on the news way back in 2017 when the world was young. We'll take a break and then we'll look at the story of Barbie and the woman who invented her, Ruth Handler. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 2019 was when we went deep into Barbie. It was the 60th anniversary of the doll and the concept. We talked to Robin Gerber, the author of several books, including Barbie and Ruth, the story of the world's most famous doll and the woman who created her and Barbie forever. Her inspiration, history, and legacy. Robin Gerber told us about Ruth Handler, who co-founded Mattel and invented Barbie. Well, Ruth Handler was actually the child of Polish-Jewish immigrants to America. She was born in 1916, and from Denver, she came with her husband to Los Angeles, and they started Mattel together. And she really was the CEO and the person who ran the company, but she had one idea for a toy in the 1950s, and that was an adult doll, which really didn't exist for little girls to play with. Her idea was that little girls wanted to play at being big girls, and that was how she hit on the idea of having an adult doll. 
Right. And we say it, when we say adult doll, in other words, dolls were little babies. Almost invariably, a doll was a little baby. So this, suddenly we have an idea of a doll who's a grown-up girl, a grown-up woman. That's to distinguish it from the other kind of adult dolls. However, we should mention the other kind of adult dolls because one of the templates, one of the inspirations for the way Barbie came out was a German toy, I believe, that was not intended for children. That's correct, yeah. You know, Ruth kept trying to get her research and design department to design an adult doll, and they were telling her during the 50s, well, Ruth, no mother will buy her daughter a doll with breasts, so just forget this idea. It's never going to work. And then she took her family, the family went on a European vacation, and in a toy shop in Luzerne, Switzerland, she saw an adult doll dressed in beautiful clothing, If you looked at it, you would think it was a Barbie doll if you saw it today. And it was called Build Lily. It came from the Build newspaper cartoon about a character who was really sort of a gold-digging young woman. Maybe even you'd call her a prostitute, but it was a very salacious kind of cartoon. And the the cartoonist thought that making it into a three-dimensional doll would be fun for men to have as a gag sex toy. And so that's how this doll came to life, and then little girls saw it in Europe, thought it would be a fun toy to play with, eventually made it into toy stores. And that's where Ruth saw it, was in a toy store. And she bought several and brought them back and said to her designers, this is what I've been talking about. Make a doll like this. Now, from the get- That was the prototype. Right. From the get-go, there were sort of two strategies. One of them was to sell, sell people the doll, but the other re- strategy right away, I think, was to sell people outfits for the doll. Hence, Barbie was originally sold, I believe, in just a swimsuit, not to make her a sex object, but to create a market for some of this other stuff. Yes, exactly. And Ruth and Elliot, her husband, had always had what they called the razor-razor blade theory. That is, that you make a toy that then you can that operates as a base for buying other things to go along with it. And, of course, Barbie was the ultimate realization of that because not only clothes, and and Ruth hired a wonderful designer out of a design school in Los Angeles to make those first clothes, but not only clothes, but also all of the little accessories that go along with Barbie. And eventually, when she had a house, all the household items, so you had purses and tiny little belts and picnic baskets and that kind of thing. And all, all of that, of course, was sold separately, still is sold separately. Right. And, and so anytime anything new comes along, there's a sales opportunity. You know, there's sort of this weird middle European background to Barbie because we just des- described this German toy that was meant for adult men to have whatever fantasies they wanted to about. But there's uh, also an Austrian advertising genius. Tell us about Ernest Dichter. Yes. So Ernest Dichter came from Austria, obviously, you know, when Nazis came to power and he escaped to America. He had studied with Freud. He was a psycho, what we would call, I guess, a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, but he really was interested in working with corporations and moving them to advertise their goods in an emotional, trying to get an emotional hook. So for instance, fashioning lipstick containers to be phallic looking mm-hmm. or the idea of having a sexy model in a con- selling a convertible car those were the kind of madman ideas he was the original madman <laughs> and he did very very well he was quite sought after all over the world 
for these ideas. He had the first focus groups, and Ruth knew about him and hired him because she was worried that, in fact, mothers wouldn't buy a doll with press, and how was she going to market this doll to make it palatable for parents to buy it? Barbie's small and so petite, her clothes and figure look so neat, her dancing outfit rings the bell, at parties she will cast a spell, purses, and hats, and gloves galore, and all the gadgets gals adore. Barbie dressed for swim and fun is only $3. Her lovely fashions range from $1 to $5. Look for Barbie wherever dolls are sold. Someday I'm gonna be exactly like you. Till then I know just what I'll do. Barbie, beautiful Barbie. I'll make believe that I am you. You can tell it's Mattel. Well, so Robin, you know, there's exactly yeah. <laughs> so the first of all, the trick was not to talk to the parents, but to talk to the kids. Yes, and that had been true ever since Ruth changed the whole face of toy marketing back in 1955, when she agreed to basically bet the whole net worth of Mattel on advertisements on a new children's show called the Mickey Mouse Club. And they demanded that she pay up front in a year, for a year of advertising. And those ads were directed at kids. Now, up till then, the way you bought your toys for your kids was you looked in the Sears catalog and the parents decided what toys children would get. But once they started seeing these ads on TV that were aimed at them, kids then turned the tables and started, as they do today, <laughs> demanding that parents buy toys that they saw. So Ruth had turned that paradigm around in the mid-50s, and so by the time Barbie came along in 59, that was pretty well established by her. And yes, that ad, that first Barbie ad you just played, was aimed directly at kids. It only mentions the word doll one time, Mm -hmm. so it really creates Barbie as a real person, and that was the idea that girls could see themselves as the doll, and that the doll was a teenage fashion model who would teach them good grooming. Which is also a little bit appealing to parents, right? I mean, because they're trying to get their kids to engage in good grooming. Yeah, that came directly out of the Dichter focus ah, groups. Yes. Now, the, the other part of this psychology is aspirational. Similar, and even the music sounds a little bit like Disney. And see, so if you think about all those Disney princesses of some of the golden age of animated Disney movies, which are kind of happening coterminously, and, and it's all about what you dream you can be. The old dolls, the dolls that little girls have been playing with were babies you had to take care of. This was about something completely different. This was who I could grow up to be. Yes. I mean, baby dolls don't get, leave a lot of room for imagination in terms of what you're supposed to be. Right. You're supposed to be a mother to the baby doll. Right. <laughs> so, right, this, this, was, this broke the world wide open. And it's interesting and I think wonderful that the brand, the Barbie brand, has gone back to that idea. You can be anything is one of the taglines. Welcome to Barbie World of Sports. Let's dive in. When you press this button, her legs kick. She wants to do it backwards. Let's head over to the soccer game. A soccer ball. Two puppies. When you press her shoulders, she kicks. She scores. Barbie Sports play sets. Other dolls each sold separately. You can be anything. They really have harkened back to Ruth's original high concept idea, which was very simple. Little girls want to play being big girls. Right. And and Barbie... 
one thing Barbie never did was have kids, right? I mean, she's always been a career woman. <laughs> That's correct. So, I mean, for all the grief that Barbie takes about imposing all kinds of unrealistic ideas on girls and maybe making them feel bad about their bodies or, or just over-feminizing them or whatever, I mean, she is really kind of way ahead of her time in the sense of, I'm not having kids, I'm having a career. Yeah, and she, and even in terms of the career, she was actually... There right. were several careers that she had before women actually did them. Right. So we we got to add that uh, eventually the Barbie universe expanded. We got Midge and we got Ken. First of all, let's back up. One thing that we didn't say is that Barbie has a real full name, right? It's not just Barbie. No, Barbie Millicent Roberts is her is her actual name. Yeah. And you know, Ruth Handler when she invented this toy. And remember, we're talking about a toy company inventing a new toy. Most new toys last about three years. Mm -hmm. She absolutely thought that's what would happen with this doll, that it would last about three years. So there wasn't a thought of this empire and, you know, all that came after it. But almost immediately, little girls started asking for a boyfriend for Barbie. It all started at the dance. Barbie, the famous teenage fashion model doll by Mattel, felt that this was to be a special night. And then it happened. She met Ken. And somehow she knew that she and Ken would be going together. So now Mattel brings you Ken, Barbie's boyfriend, with a complete wardrobe of perfectly tailored clothes of unmatched quality. And we should say that Ruth's daughter was named Barbara, and her son, Kenneth, gave up the name Ken to Ken. Well, he didn't give it up. He kept it, too. But but he he was not entirely happy about all this, right? Uh, I would say neither of the children were particularly happy. The Ken doll, of course, had no anatomical, you know, you couldn't see any even bulge right. on the Ken doll. And that, you know, I think because Ken was an adolescent at the time, that was led to some teasing, and and Barbara, you know, to this day, I believe, won't be called Barbie. She wants to be called Barbara and, you know, was not happy with the association. But Ken didn't... Again, she was a teenager, and here's this voluptuous doll with her name. So, you know, kids are going to react. But then what can we do right as parents? Right. So, I mean, so Ken had a couple of problems with Ken. One of them was, as you as you said, he, actually in a letter, he said that the dolls were kowtowing to those who can't accept the issue of their own sexuality. I guess that's the lack of genitalia or whatever. But mm-hmm. he also didn't like the materialism, right? There's like you know, Barbie and Ken are acquisitional characters. Yeah, well, he was, yes, he was an interesting guy, Ken, and he turned out to be gay himself. Mm-hmm. Ironically, you know, since the doll, the Ken doll became a gay icon, you know, as as time went on and he started to have, the doll started to have fashions that seemed to, to look to some people like they were what, you know, a, a gay man might wear. Right. So he then, you know, picked up this this reputation, the doll did. So, yeah, Ken was, he was a, an original thinker, I would say. So, yes, he had problems on a political level as well as on a personal level with the doll. Right. Probably a turning point for Ken the doll was 1993, Earring Magic Ken, right? Yes. That was one of the ones that, you know, obviously the doll was not in any way marketed to be gay. But, yes, that was picked up by the gay community at a time when, well, of course, you know, AIDS was first being discovered and dealt with, and the gay community was very active and politicized. 
We should say uh, just a little bit more before we say goodbye. We'll never say entirely goodbye to Ruth. But Ruth Handler herself developed breast cancer and then did a remarkable thing, right? She actually invented a prosthesis? Yes, yes. She discovered when she got breast cancer in 1970 and she had a mastectomy, First of all, in the 70s, women did not tell people they had a mastectomy. It was something, unfortunately, the women felt they had to be ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And when she went in to be fitted to get a prosthetic, they sort of tossed it over the dressing room door, and she felt humiliated. And she said, well, I can... She looked at these statistics and saw that millions of women were going to be getting breast cancer, and... She thought there's a better way, and she actually used the material they were using for baby dolls at Mattel and helped, had some of her designers help her and created this company called Nearly Me with, as she put it, you know, prosthetics that had a right and a left in different sizes, just like real women, and she marketed it. She had a team of women like herself who had mastectomies and created salons for women to be fitted so they could feel comfortable and respected. So, yes, she built another successful, wonderful company that helped a lot of women. In a slight departure from this pretty amazing narrative of success that began way back in 1959 with the introduction of Barbie and and she founds her own toy company, but she does get into trouble in the 1970s, kind of around the same time that she's starting to battle cancer. She's ultimately ousted from Mattel after some pretty serious allegations. Yeah, there were financial improprieties, a scheme called Bill and Hold, where you report higher orders than you actually have. Mm -hmm. It was a time when Mattel was selling, uh, was buying other companies with Mattel stock, so they couldn't afford to have the stock price go down. And so cooking the books was, you know, what was done to keep it appearing that Mattel was doing better than it was. And she was pushed out of the company in 74, along with Elliot, although he was not part of the scheme. Mm-hmm. She pleaded nolo contendere, which is basically a, a guilty plea, uh, no contest plea, to the charges in 78 mm-hmm. and was given a community service sentence. Mm-hmm. So it was a very, very terrible time in her life, a very low point. The scheme, while it was absolutely wrong, mm-hmm. was not an uncommon scheme in corporate America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she felt really wronged by the whole thing. And but she turned around and started this new company and, you know, really discovered a way to help other people and still be a a corporate leader. Right. And we never got a white collar crime Barbie. So although, <laughs> though maybe there'll be a Theranos Barbie eventually, you know, Elizabeth Holmes Barbie. I guarantee you the Barbie epithet got slapped on Elizabeth Holmes at some point or other because that's just the way the world works. It's a cruel <laughs> world. But anyway, nobody's perfect. The point is, you know, if all she ever did in her life was invent Barbie, that'd be pretty awesome to have invented Barbie, founded that company, and then as sort of a second or third chapter invented this uh, new kind of breast prosthetic. That's a, that's a pretty good run. Yes. She, she was an extraordinary corporate leader, probably one of the greatest of the last century. That was Robin Gerber, the author of Barbie and Ruth, the story of the world's most famous doll and the woman who created her. And by the way, Ruth Handler is actually portrayed by the great Rhea Perlman in the new Barbie movie, which after a break, the nose will take a look at.
Before we get going again, I have some people to thank, including Josh Nalea, who I think produced that 2019 epic Barbie episode for us, Betsy Kaplan, Cat Pastor, Kion Wolf, Lily Tyson, and of course, Jonathan McNichol, Mr. McPants, who is sewing all of this information together into a seamless whole. And that's W-H-O-L-E, not H-O-L-E. Anyway, we like all kinds of seamless holes, and I, I suppose Barbie dolls have them. Anyway, let's go to this week's nose. There was a conversation about the number one movie in the country, the one that made the box office explode, Greta Gerwig's Barbie. The nose is Rebecca Castellani, James Hanley, Sean Murray, and Carolyn Payne. Hi, Barbie. Good Barbie. Thanks, Ken. So I actually loved Barbie as a kid. And so Barbie has a special place in my heart. And I was cautiously very optimistic that this movie, I was going to love this movie. And I liked it a lot. Like the first hour is was spectacular. I was laughing. There are all these wonderful little references. If if you are into Barbie lore and you played with Barbie, the way, you know, things that you notice, just these little details, like when she opens, when Barbie opens her fridge and it's just stickers of the mm-hmm. food, just like you had on the toy. Every it was that kind of detailing and and the sense of humor. I was all in. The second half of the movie does get a little bit chewy. There's a lot of messages. There's a lot of, you know, resolution we have to get to. It it became this very big journey. And some of that is still fun. But overall, I mean, I, I really can't wait till it's available for streaming to see it again. I may even go see it again in the theater because there's just so many fun little lines and jokes. And I think that my processing of the emotional stuff in it will will be different the second time too because I'll know I'll know what I'm in for but overall it it delivered it delivered on the pink glory fun of a Barbie <laughs> movie that we needed yes Anthony Lane had the line of the week he said the first half hour of the movie is so pink it's like being waterboarded with Pepto-Bismol <laughs> it's just tough to top that but Sean yeah you know I mean I think you know I, to me America Ferreira is just amazing in this movie and so is the girl that plays her daughter and so is uh, Margot Robbie she just brings a kind of knowingness to this kind of complicated idea she's got to be this sort of clueless doll but she's got to be gradually clued in, too. I think she does a great job. But I know you want to talk, perversely, about a guy. A guy named Ryan Gosling. Oh, looks like this beach was a little too much beach for you, Ken. If I wasn't severely injured, I would beat you off right now, Ken. I'll beat you off with you any day, Ken. Hold my ice cream, Ken. All right, Ken, you're on. Let's beat you off. Anyone who wants to beat him off has to beat me off first. I will beat both of you off at the same time. But you don't even know how to beat yourself off. How are you going to beat oh, both of us off? It doesn't make sense. And you can beat yourself off. You're going to beat both of us off. Nobody's going to beat anyone off. We should just say, Sean, that this is both a movie that you're going to bring your seven-year-old daughter to and a movie you kind of shouldn't bring your seven-year-old daughter to. <laughs> there's, there's both of those things are going on, as you just heard in this particular clip. But I know you also want to talk about Gosling and the work he does. The very amazing, sexy Ryan Gosling. I mean, just to your point about bringing your seven-year-old and not want to bring your like, isn't that every movie now? Like, every Pixar <laughs> movie is about, like, the existential crisis of, like, <laughs> thinking about death and also, like, it's colorful, like, cartoon emotions or whatever. So it's weird. But, um, I mean, Gosling's amazing. I, like, I, I hate to make a movie about and by women about Gosling, but it's like, 
he's so good. Like he's so <laughs> game for this sort of role. Like, uh, like he's such a talented actor as like um, a serious actor. He could do. He has like every. He has every pitch. You know what I mean. He, he got a fastball. He's got a curveball. He's got a changeup. Like this guy can do it all. And like, I don't want to undercut the fact that Margot Robbie is amazing in this role because it's it's such a subtlety that she has to play. Like it's it's a, it's an easy role to overlook, which he's doing. But Gosling is written to go so big, and he goes big, and it never feels like this. Sometimes actors try to do this thing, and like they're not naturally funny, or they just don't know how to key it in correctly. So it's like it's like you could see that they're trying too hard. It's just so natural for him. Like there's so many scenes where it's like it, I don't know. He's perfect. He's he's the greatest person to ever live. I guess shredding waves is much more dangerous than people realize. You're very brave, Ken. Thank you, Barbie. Yeah. You know, surfer's not even my job. I know. And it is not lifeguard, which is a common misconception. Very common. Yeah, because actually my job, it's just beach. Right. And what a good job you do at beach. Hey, Barbie. Yeah. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned. Just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Goodbye. Well, I do want to say, if you want to have somebody play Ken, a toy, you you you're smart to talk to talk to the representation of a guy Ryan Gosling who got his start on the Mickey Mouse Club. Yes. I mean, the singing and <laughs> dancing and all that stuff. You know, he manages to be on the Mickey Mouse Club in this movie, but also the guy in the big short who says, yeah, "That's a nice shirt. Do they make it for men?" Uh, so, you know, Rebecca, we have to talk about Greta Gerwig too. This is obviously mm. an, an auteur's work here. And somehow or other, she managed to do this incredibly subversive movie in which characters, particularly young Sasha, talk about the ways in which Barbie just isn't cool, you know, and is oppressive and is undermining in a movie that's sponsored and essentially produced by the toy company. What did Greta Gerwig say to people, you know, the people in management, the the Will Ferrell people in the top floor suite? But just talk a little bit about how how that's all worked out here so that it's it's the opposite of an infomercial for the toy. Yeah. I mean, unlike Carolyn, I wasn't a huge Barbie person. And I actually mentioned to my therapist that I was going to see this movie. And she was like, what? Like, you don't strike me as somebody that would be at all interested in this. And I think that's what makes this movie so brilliant. And I think one of the marketing slogans, or at least it's one of the early trailers, like, it doesn't matter if you love Barbie or if you hate Barbie, this movie is for you. And Greta Gerwig just absolutely... I mean, I think the whole movie is just such an exposition of how everything, whether it's the female identity, Barbie, the patriarchy, has layers to it. It is complicated. It is messy. It is not one thing. And I think that movie really delivers this. So, and I stand by this. I mean, I kind of like a Barbie convert now and like want to get back into Barbies. (laughs) But I, I left that movie being like, even if you still hate Barbie, like there were so many beats this movie deploys that are enjoyable. I mean, it really, I think Greta Gerwig is the most interesting director on the scene right now. I I love what she's done. I loved what she did with Little Women. I think she's really good at taking a story that we think we're familiar with. We all think we know Barbie and turning it on its head. I thought it was a very self-aware film. I mean, they poke fun at one point of like how beautiful Margot Robbie is and how if you're trying to underscore the point that she's not got makeup on and is ugly now, like you've picked the wrong actress. I mean, it's just, there were so many little moments of self-reflection that I think Greta Gerwig herself injected into the film. I think she is just really one to watch. I I don't know. I think that there's a world in which she wins Best Director for this. I do. I, I think that it really... 
is a masterstroke from her. And I can't imagine what the pitching process was like on this. And I know there was originally a version of this in which Amy Schumer was attached to it and dropped out of the project because she didn't think it was like feminist leading enough. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Greta Gerwig was attached to that original script or not, but I think that she's really it didn't turn into too much of like a, a feminist diatribe at any point, even though obviously it dispatches the patriarchy gloriously. So, I mean, she's just a star. Yeah. I, I do want to say that, speaking of Amy Schumer, I think this is maybe the first cinematic use of Kate McKinnon where I thought, okay, these are the Ugh. things that Kate McKinnon can do. Come into my weird house. Hi, I'm Weird Barbie. I am in the splits. I have a funky haircut and I smell like basement. Oh my God, I had a weird Barbie. Yeah, you did. You make them weird by playing too hard. It's cool. I think translating her stuff from SNL into cinema has yeah. not worked in a whole series of movies, including the Ghostbusters thing. But this, you know, you really kind of see the stuff that she can do. And so, James, it feels I, like an SNL skit. Yes, it, yes, <laughs> in, in, at times, and then at times not. But yes. So, James, and I'd just be lo- interested to hear anything you want to say about Barbie. But I do want to just <laughs> have you comment a little bit. Also, there's a knowingness to this movie that starts in the first few. The first few seconds of this movie are, you know, a minute or two of two thousand. One. I mean, there's basically, a, you know, the, the 2001 opening is redone with dolls. And, and there's sort of an implied literateness to this whole movie. There's kind of things that you need to maybe be, a you need to at least know a 12-year-old girl to get some of the jokes, but you kind of have to know a 50-year-old man to get some of the other jokes. But So I'd love to hear anyway what your overall response was. Well, I think it's very rare that you get that coming together of an extraordinary writing talent and an ability to draw together all of these different ideas while delivering the bad news for bigots. I mean, the day is over, really, that that sort of repressive attitude can continue. And it comes from a place, I think there's such complexity to this, that it's the, it's the awareness of the filmmakers and the players and to bring all sorts of ideas together in a movie that theoretically the studios want to avoid all those very things like don't bring in those things and yet you have a very powerful woman in the film industry now Greta Gerwig who has really shown that this can be done and it comes from a place originally the Mattel company produced a sexist doll that 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 children loved, that girls loved in particular, and some boys too. And it really is interesting that the company pivoted a long time ago to the idea that this needed to develop, this needed to change, and Ruth Handler's creation needed to grow and be be sort of organic in, in the market. And I think that their decision to take a chance, if you like, on Greta Gerwig was actually a masterstroke that it means that everybody's talking about Barbie. And I mean, I, I have to say, I love the movie. I, I I had very few criticisms of it. And I was just thrilled to see America Ferreira take over the movie for a good section of it. Mom, are you really going to let Barbie take you and your tween daughter to an imaginary land? Yes. And you want to know why? Because I never get to do anything. I didn't even go on that cruise I won at your school raffle because I didn't have enough vacation days and your dad's allergic to sun. Oh, what about dad? You can't just leave him. He'll be fine. She played that part so well, and it's it spoke so much to the attempt to actually bring complexity and social awareness and social, the whole sense that you could really evolve and explain things differently to children, but also bring in adults. I mean, there's so many things that really worked on that front. 
it's a turning point kind of thing. And it happens to be a turning point that also suddenly clicked for the idea of movie going. Yeah, there's, you know, I mean, this is a movie that begins with kind of a kind of a Kubrick homage. The second to last thing you hear in the movie is a United Farm Workers slogan. <laughs> Think about that. And in between, there's an evocation of, you know, a Gene Kelly dream dance sequence, except by a bunch of, you know, amped up militant Kens. You know, so, Carolyn, I should say that I was sort of in the same place you were. I The first hour and 20 minutes, I was entranced by this movie. I was laughing about it as hard as I can laugh at a movie. I did feel as though at the end, I think I said in the emails, it was kind of like 20 or 30 minutes of listening to people at an ayahuasca retreat or talking about their <laughs> ayahuasca retreat. Everybody was talking about it, just the incredible insights that they'd had and stuff. And I thought the movie lost a little of its energy. But there are some interesting things, too. Like we, somebody else recently said, we kind of got Will Ferrell back. Like this is the Will Ferrell <laughs> with his pink drumsticks, and he can figure out how his key card works. This is the Will Ferrell we've been missing for a long time. But just say anything you want about it. Yeah, I Will Ferrell was giving me President Business from Lego Movie yes. vibes. Fantastic. Would you cancel my two o'clock? This next meeting could run a little bit deadly. And it made me think how like the Lego movie was such, that's another movie that took a toy and really did something special with it in a movie that like adults who played with that toy can now have this movie and it kind of like brings them back like, or, you know, makes them want to play with the toy, like Rebecca now wanting to bust out some Barbie dolls, (laughs) but play date. (laughs) Yeah. Fight fight that urge, Rebecca. (laughs) I, I think that this movie was really at its best with all of these little like I mean first of all just the performances like Will Ferrell I have to go back to what Sean was saying about Ryan Gosling as Ken I think he's gonna get an Oscar nomination for playing Ken but I really think that that can happen and Kate McKinnon spectacular America just everyone everyone in the movie and Mike, Michael Sarah actually does oh Michael Sarah we have to talk about Alan Hi Barbie Hi Barbie Hi Barbie. hi, Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Oh, hi, Alan. There are no multiples of Alan. He's just Alan. Yeah, I'm, I'm confused about that. <laughs> well, Alan and, and Midge, I really felt oh like... Oh, my we, God. So good. <laughs> <laughs> like, Midge, Midge was my favorite. I had a stack full of Midge dolls for redhead representation for myself as a child. I was very much even more into Midge. So I was a little crushed that we went with, you know, discontinued pregnant Midge as the joke here but still i i just all of those little references the part where you know they're talking about barbie and her existential crisis and you hear the voiceover about like eating a bag of starbursts at late at night until your mouth hurts the existential wind down of barbie and that feeling the emotional connection that you could have with this movie while it was making you laugh i think was really well done oh, but yeah. yes, i have to say that when i saw the movie it was I, I mean, I, I appreciated that, but I went to the bathroom right after the movie. And first of all, everyone at the movie theater was wearing pink. Adorable. Love that for them. But I went to the bathroom and all the women, as the women were coming to the bathroom, were shouting, hi, Barbie, at one another and wiping off their mascara from sobbing at this movie. But, you know, I think that that's what this movie really did kind of take you back to childhood and make you feel connected to something, whether it be the toy or relating to any of the characters and the feelings. So I thought that that was pretty, that was not what I expected, but it was pretty cool. 
And that was Rebecca Castellani, James Hanley, Sean Murray, and Carolyn Payne, a.k.a. The Nose, and that's our show. Thanks to Jonathan McNichol for patiently stitching all this stuff together, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>